The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. My guest today is Steve Aoki. You know Steve as the famed DJ who is traveling all around the world for the last, you know, 10 years, recently doing up to 250 shows a year. And we talk about it all. We talk about his famous dad, Rocky, who created Benihana, incredibly successful, very complex. His days growing up in Newport Beach and how, you know, being one of the only Japanese kids in the hood and in his school, the challenges of that and and what music brought to him, his deep love of music and passion for music and the freedom that he has found in music. Um, He talks about his days of promoting other acts, Denmark Records, and even throwing shows for 30 and 40 people when he went to Santa Barbara after high school in his pickle patch days. So this is somebody who's been in all sides of the music business, has had to work for every single thing he has. I mean, just because his first DJ name was Kid Millionaire, it couldn't be further from the truth. His father made it very clear that um, if you wanted to do this, you had to do this on your own. And I know there were plenty of months that Steve wasn't sure if he was gonna be able to pay his rent. So like all of us, he's trying to juggle his work life and his personal life and just kind of where he's at now and where he hopes to be in the future. I hope you enjoy the show. Steve, how are you doing? Good. Are your windows blacked out right now? Yeah, yeah, they're blacked out, yeah. Okay. Is that for recording or is that because you've been filming and interviewing people and your wellness week and all of that? It looks kind of futuristic a little bit because it's got like the light coming through the side, but it's actually just, if I have it up, I can't even see the screen. Got it. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to just go right into it. And it's funny because I read, well, I listened to Blue and uh, we have the book. It's behind me. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, that's great. You know, a lot of, there's just a lot of different things. And and for me, my whole conversation I always want to have is you're somebody who's pursued a lot of things from you know, music and promotion and all of these things, you know, cause a lot of people think, Oh, you're a DJ. But when you really listen to your journey of having done so many different facets of your business, like even the idea that you're an artist who people work with and for, but you really spend a lot of your time being excited about and promoting other artists, you know, maybe gives you a different perspective. Yeah. You know, yeah, for sure. You're excited about the art and, you know, other people's art. And, but I think what, what kept coming up for me, um, you know, is that like how you're oriented towards looking at the positive. Mm-hmm. And I think you have people like yourself who have these crazy big worlds and platforms, but then it's like, how do you take all those lessons and your functioning, you know, sort of greater in your real life? And, and I want to talk about that. So I first want to get into like your family. I know a lot of people probably know that your mom's fully Japanese and your dad was you know pretty notorious uh, anyone named rocky i mean honestly if you look at a photo of your dad it's like oh that guy is like a 
you want to hang out with that guy, but (laughs) your house, like, you know, a joke, if you go look at, you know, your dad, you think that's a get it done kind of guy. And I think, you know, Laird and I talk about this a lot. How does a person, and I know that you have several siblings, what you have six other siblings. Yes, I do. Yeah. But that for men, males to, and I know that you, you didn't necessarily live with your dad, but I want to start there where how you created your own real estate, because you'll find that children of somebody who has been so wildly successful. He created the Benihana restaurants. And it wasn't just that. He had an, it, there's a vibration there that he was larger than life. Yeah. Like offshore racing and just the whole thing. How do you, and I know you're not the oldest, so maybe that makes it easier on you in a different way. Yeah. How yeah. You- maybe that's a lot. I'm sure that has something to do with it unconsciously too. But also I wasn't raised by him. Right. But still it's always like that I think because a lot of people go through that, they'll go, Oh, your dad's a CEO or they're an athlete. Are you going to be like your dad? Are you going to do what your dad does? And I know your brothers took that hit a little more than you going into the family business, but you know, what is it inside of you that has the confidence to say, I admire all that goes into that and that hard work, which you, you clearly have, but that to forge your own way, especially in something that could be perceived like being in music and it took you a minute to like really go beyond paying your bills how do you have that thing inside of you that you go, I love my tradition. I love my family. I love my dad. Right. But I think I can do it differently and be just be myself. Yeah. I, I think there, I mean, there's a, a lot of different layers there for sure. But one of the ones that stand out is that my dad didn't financially spoil me. So he never even left me a lifeline like hey if if you need help like i'm here that was actually not even an, an opportunity for that he was very much a tough skinned tough love like if you don't make it then you're truly on your own like you know like i i i i don't want to i i give this example of like this is by the way not what he said this is just my like feeling as a kid growing up so i don't want to say it. this is like how i felt but like He's the kind of guy, like the dad, that would be like, okay, all my all my kids go and sail across to the other side of the uh, of the river. You know, whoever wins, like you know, I'm gonna give you a big hug. And as we're sailing, right, we're like competing against each other because we're all always competing against each other for dad's attention and love. As we're sailing, he gets his like sniper rifle out, and he like shoots like a bullet into the uh, the the sail of each of our sales. So like things aren't like things aren't supposed to go right. And then we fix that. And then he shoots a hole in like the guy, the the guy or the girl that's like ahead, he shoots like two holes in like the boat. And then we have to patch that up. And then like another one, he shoots another hole here. And then like, you know, it just makes it a hard time to get across. And, and if you don't make it, you don't make it. Do you think that that's a, you know, I have three kids, so I'm always curious, even from parenting, because I think both Laird and I had a difficult childhood. So then we almost, I don't want to say went the other way, but in certain ways you overcompensate and you want to, you know, create a certain different situation or, or a different environment for your kids. But it's sometimes for me, as I feel like, even though maybe there's, you know, we all have childhood trauma of sorts, but even though you had to fight that feeling of like, could my dad just, 
you know, make it easier or be a little more loving or say, Hey, good job, son. But that somehow a lot of people, if they don't drown when the, he's shooting at the boat, that look at you, it's like, does that really, you know, that pressure, that stress really produce very strong and resourceful people? Yeah. I mean, so there's this whole aspect of him being tough love and uh, not, not financially being there. Cause like the thing is, is that he was, he's the Benny Hanna guy. Yeah. I know. Know, he, was, he was, everyone knew if you knew me, you knew my dad and like, like, Oh, he's rich. I mean, Steve's like so loaded. He like gets whatever he wants, which is like an assumption that it's easy to, to believe, you know, like you would, I, I would probably think that too. But the thing is, is that it's, like since he didn't do that and I had I also had this complex like well people really think I'm just like making it through life so easy I had to overcompensate on that on that part and secondly I think the fact that he wasn't around was maybe beneficial for me I don't know it might it might have been better that I had to like figure this out without his guidance like I, it was more of an aspiration yeah you know it was is more like something to look forward to, like try to become kind of thing. Yeah. And I don't want to talk about the Benihana guy, if you will. What I'm interested in is the things, because you say a lot about like trying to cover your rent and, you know, you're going at 19 and flying to Japan with college mates to play a few tours, unknown and known, and your mom's, you know, going to have to pay your ticket. Like, so if you worked and had lots of situations of, of making it or, you know, flying, what did I read one where it's like fly, spend $200 to make a hundred dollars for your art, right. for your passion. Yeah. I guess what I'm interested in is, do you think you were born with this? And because uh, plenty of people have to try to figure out how to survive, but you not only figured out how to survive, but you were diverse. You did all many corners of your business. And now, you know, you have large level success. What is it in you um, and you never sound angry in your book where you're open and honest. I never get that you feel that you sound angry, that you somehow it's like, oh, this is an observation. Yeah, I definitely got frustrated. There's no doubt about it. Like, there's like major amounts of frustration, especially when, you know, you're in a, in a state where you're not sure if you're going to make it out no matter what you do. In, like the time when I was living in LA, I, I just left college I was in my apartment with my girlfriend and and I was seemingly doing really, really well with my business, with my record label. We signed some big acts and I was touring and like people thought we were crushing it. It was another like perspective issue that wasn't really happening. And then I looked at the books and I was like, holy shit, I'm so in debt and there was no way out. And there's definitely no lifeline for my dad. There was absolutely no way he would give me money because he was already against the fact that I was even doing this. He thought it was like a mistake. It would, if I was to explain to him I was that much in debt, he would have been, I told you so. I told you to get a job. It's boring. Life is supposed to be boring. You're supposed to work in a cubicle. That's just how it is. You, uh, you know, which, you know, out of like the safety of being a parent, I can understand being like, don't tread to the part where it's like you have 5% success. If you have a normal job, you can have like- If 5% success. Yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever, whatever it might be. It's just like, you're like, why are you going in this area where it's so difficult to succeed when you could just get a job and like just make sure everything's taken care of and then you have time for the hobbies. When I was putting my my whole life into this space and with no business acumen, I had 
you know, I just, I had so much passion bleeding into it. I had no, like I was a, a mess organizationally with, through the business side. And uh, when I found that out, when I was in that uh, hole in that state of mind, we're like, okay, this is, this is going to suck because I, I might have to stop doing what I'm doing, but, but I'm crushing it. Like the world, like the, all the major labels, these managers, they all want to work with Dimock. Like I'm getting all these like inquiries to sign, like these great bands assigned to us. And we're, we're like sitting under a huge, huge hole of money that couldn't climb out of. And when it's funny, cause you say crushing it. So that, I think that's so true to tone of, it feels like everything you've done, which is the excitement of it, the art of it, making a change of art of it, you know, of it, that for you seems going back, even when you were very young, like that for you was success. And then it's like, oh, you know, art and commerce. Now you're dealing with the commerce part. And, and very few people um, can, bri- can bridge. Oh, that, yeah. Those yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like the business side is a complete different beast. You know, you, like the creative side and the business side, if you can get someone can, to handle both, like that's, that's a lot of computation out of the brain. It's a lot of like brain cycles, you know, just... It's, it's a lot, you know, and like when you're a startup or when you're just you, you have to do it all. You know, you, you can't rely on anybody else. You just have to learn everything. So th- like th- those are very, very difficult lessons in my life that I had to face myself. And the fact that I, I wasn't going to get a lifeline no matter what was actually one of the key mental moments for me to really think for myself and not be like, okay, don't, it's all good. Dad's going to cover this. It's all good. I, I'm, I'm good. I, I, the debt is going to be covered. If I had that, I wouldn't have learned how to, to do what I had to do, which was DJ and make money. Who, who knows? Actually, that, that, that was a turning point when I think about it. Who knows if I would have pursued DJing with such persistence? You know, I was like, I need to make money. But I was having fun too. So it was great. But I, I need to do more gigs. I need to make the extra $200 here, $200 there. Because back then it was, it was, you know, that's the kind of money I, I was making. I was, what was the one gig where you, you were, you sort of were just getting into DJing and I, I, somebody got you a gig and I think it was like, it was probably a corporate gig for like five grand or something crazy like that. Why didn't you give up on the art? Like what in you said, okay, cause you, there's a lot of years of, you know, from being at school and, you know, doing, I couldn't, I couldn't even believe that you had written, you know, you were a critic writing about music and then um, doing pickle patch and putting on shows and doing all this, you know, really for passion, not like, Oh, you know, this is going to really lead to something. What's in it in you that you go? Yes. Were there days you're like, this is not going to work or, or did you, was it the thing inside you? Like, what is, I, I think that's the, the, one of the, the other things that like that stays with me through despite till I'm 42 now, like since I was a kid being in the hardcore scene is like the, the straight edge hardcore scene I was part of, like the, the philosophy and ethos of that scene is all about contribution. It's all about like, um, you get your cool points by contributing to your culture. It's like being a small religion in a way where every single person has to contribute. It's like living in a cooperative, a co-op. You, if you want to live here, you have to contribute. And 
it's not like you contribute to like get a room, it's contribute to get like respect. So all I cared about was respect for my peers. When you're a kid, that's all you really care about, you know, because it's not like you're not, you're not, you know, you don't have money when you're a kid, but all you care about is like getting like your friends to like you, the girl or guy to like you, whatever it might be. So, um, that, that always kind of stayed with me that the, the idea of contribution to a community and, and where there's no, there's no, uh, exchange. It's not about like getting paid for that contribution. Cause it's like, you care so much about it. Like I got to write a zine. Cause I remember I was like 16 and my friends were writing. So like, I got to write a zine too. I could do it as well. Go to Kinko's and glue the, I get a typewriter out, type out the interviews, go to the shows. Oh, I could put on the shows too. Like we found this abandoned warehouse. We put on the show here. And then the, the ability to do anything that, that, uh, that's in front of you. Like, oh, this, this person's in a band. I want to start a band with my friends and we'll be shitty, but we'll like, you know, we'll, we'll do that so that we're contributing. We're like starting, the, starting a band, learning how to play instruments, doing a zine, putting on the shows, and then like taking that element to college, doing the same thing there, advancing, you know, learning more about community building. And, and the whole time, there was no money exchanged. It was more about like the goodwill of, of all of us working together. I've definitely taken that kind of philosophy to all the different businesses. If you want to build a brand, you have to contribute. You have to, you have to really be of service. And if you truly have service, people will work with you. You know, whatever it might be. Same with DJing. I was DJing for free. I mean, I was excited to even get a gig, you know, and like, I'm basically DJing for free again now because of COVID. I'm playing so many virtual sets and and, and totally enjoying it because that's the best I could do. But like, you know, it's like you, like, you know, when I spent time with you and Laird at your house, it was like the feeling you guys gave me was this like feeling of like, you were so excited to share this incredible information, how to heal your body and do so much more with your body. And and learn about the body through the sauna, through the cold plunge, through the uh, through the pool. Like it's it it, it I, I'll never forget that, you know, for the, for the rest of my life. Those are th- like that feeling is you know if you give off that feeling, you know, it, like it it's a it's a game changer. Hi, so our show today is sponsored by Beast Brands. They're makers of premium hair and body wash, lotions, and skincare products. I'm very familiar with this brand as I've been using the Everyone Wash by Beast Brands for over six months myself. It means everyone can use it. It just won a huge award, the Men's Health Grooming Award. And the Everyone Wash is lightly scented. It's a head-to-toe cleanser that you can replace a bunch of stuff with. You can replace your shampoo, face cleanser, and of course your body wash. And it's perfect for sensitive skin. It's got some aloe, shea butter, ginseng, orange, you know, words that we can actually pronounce. And the other thing I love about Beast products is not only do you feel really clean, it smells amazing. You've got some eucalyptus, green and herbal. It's not so perfumey or chemically smelling. And it's really simple because it's made from natural botanicals and that's it. So I I feel good about using this product. And the other thing I love about them is they are vegan, they're cruelty-free and they're made right here in the USA. 
And they're always looking for ways to be more eco-friendly. And I can see that in the in the bottle that I have. So the bottle I have is their new Beast bottle. It's infinitely reusable. It's an aluminum, really well-constructed, sexy, shiny pump bottle. And it holds about six months supply of one of their all-in-one body washes. So you can cut down on all that plastic waste, save yourself some money, and don't have your shower full of plastic bottles. Just this nice, clean, sexy, strong bottle. It's sleek and gorgeous. And if you want to check them out on Twitter or Instagram, go to at Tame the Beast. That's at Tame the Beast. In our house, we're not trying to tame the beast. We're just trying to get the beast clean and they do a great job of that. Or you can go check them out at getbeast.com and use the code Gabby at checkout to get yourself, yep, 20% off your next order. So that's getbeast, G-E-T-B-E-A-S-T.com and use the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout to save yourself 20% off your next order. Hi, new friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink, and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to The Bitch Bible Podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. Both Laird and I, not so dissimilar and dissimilar from you, you know, always grew up feeling a little bit like outsiders. I, I, I'm very tall, at, you know, 6'3 at 15. And Laird grew up Caucasian in Hawaii and loving Hawaiian Polynesian culture. You know, I, I like in a lot of, I think a lot of his big wave surfing was like, okay, now are you going to respect me? And I know for you growing up in Newport, you know, Japanese, there's something really obvious about feeling like, oh, I'm on the outside. And, and I started thinking about that further. And I actually feel that what we don't understand in that moment is that most likely even the people who appear to be the popular ones or what have you, is that when you're in adolescence, it's like this cocoon, like this hell cocoon of discomfort where you are going to, if you embrace what's different about you, you turn into your butterfly, you know? But when I was reading about it, I can only imagine how that has played a part. So you have this very old culture that you're adhering to, and then you're in Newport, which is surf and skate. And, and, you know, I just wondered, you wouldn't be you right now with kind of that, without that pain. Absolutely. There's no doubt if I lived 15 minutes away from where I lived in Irvine with all Asians, I would be a completely different person because, you know, that you have the comfort. That's why, you know, like different people of color, like live in different people of color's communities, just rather the comfort, the understanding of the culture and not deal with racism or whatnot. And Newport Beach, I mean, like the statistic that, 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 that when I was there was 96% white and, you know, like you're a kid. There's a, like, it's unfiltered. Kids just say what they're going to say. So like blatant racism was, was definitely something I was dealing with young, at younger ages. As you get older, it's more subliminal, things like that that happen. Yeah, I mean, feeling like I couldn't fit in or I couldn't you know, fit in with certain friends or the difficulty to socialize, like this yearning to like belong. It was so strong. And when I found that music 
was that, that space for me. I was like, I'm devoting my life to you like you're Jesus Christ. Like I am, like if I'm a Christian, you know what I mean? I am devoting my being to this thing because you've given me a space to feel belonging, uh, to where I can actually say something where it's not going to be ridiculed or like, you know, feel self-hatred. You know, that's another thing too, is like when you grow up like that, like there's a lot of self-hatred because you're just different, you know? you feel alone too, because, and when you feel alone, it's even more that the self-hatred is even harder. Like, you know, I bleached my hair blonde. Like I was a punk too, you know, punks bleached hair, but I was like, I didn't like myself being Asian. I didn't like my eyes. I didn't like not fitting in. And then when I found like this, this reclamation of myself, my identity, you know, through music, it, it just was like, you know, it was like, I, I'm giving my being to you. It's not about, you know, like an exchange of money or whatever we're talking about later on, but it's about what kind of contribution can I give to, to this world? Because I, this world has changed my life. Yeah. It felt like the voice, your voice could come out. So you could sing your song loud. You could, you know, move freely in these environments. And I think we're, we all feel kind of restrained by rules anyway. And then if you add certain cultures, which are, you know, Hey, don't make a scene, follow the rules, don't stand out. You know, it's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the Japanese cultural paradigm, if you will, that you don't stick out. Like that's just a very traditional Japanese way of life is don't stick your head up, you know, stay down, don't cause a scene. And, you know, whenever, whenever like some shit hit the fan when I was a kid and I get in a fight because some, some kid was just being stupid and racist or whatever, even my best friend at the time, he was just turned on me and just called me all kinds of names and told me that he couldn't hang out with me anymore. And, and we got in a fight. My mom would be rushing, apologizing, you know, like, so sorry, so sorry. We won't cause any problems. Like Steve, come over here. Don't. Like, don't cause, don't cause problems. Don't cause problems. And you get confused, you know, you're just confused. Like, but mom, like they were throwing shit at me, saying, calling me all these like really bad, bad things. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like we we don't want to have any problems in our household. Like we barely can even have, you know, she's broken English and she like, we just didn't have any, like a a good friend network to to support us. So, you know, it's like, I get it now from her side. But as a kid, I'm just like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. But it's it's an interesting idea, though, where it's like, yes, you inherited your family's culture, but you also grew up. Your, I mean, every anyone who lives in the, is American, and in a way, it's like going, no, but wait a second, I want to be heard, and I want to move about freely with abandonment and like not be self conscious. And it's an interesting thing to see when people can bring the those things together, you know, it's, it's hard to do. It's usually like one or the other. And you, you've managed to really meld these two things and, and bring them, you know, together. And, and um, maybe you could just talk a little bit when you were younger, because I found it interesting that you decided when you were young, I know that, you know, whatever you bought one time, you and a friend jointly bought acid, but you were, I guess, <laughs> the only one who consumed it. And after that experience, you sort of said, okay, I'm, I'm off that and I'm going to live, you know, this, yeah, straight this edge. Kind of, um, yeah. yeah, straight edge. 
was that like, you know, you didn't question that there wasn't like weird curiosity. I mean, I know later there was some other stuff, but I wasn't particularly hardwired to investigate things. And I, like I said, I have three daughters and they're all very different. And some are like, oh, what's that? And I have others that are like, oh, no, thank you. You, know, so you sort of made this almost like a religious. Path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the, that acid trip at that 13 year old brain is still developing. You, you know, it's like, like the things that like I'm afraid of were things that was taught to me in, in Catholic school, burning in a lake of fire, you know, like, like the devil, like, you know, like, like those are the most fearful things. And then on top of that, I have like, like the video games I was playing and, and like the, the heavy metal I was listening to that was just like scary <laughs> you know, so all of that coming at you at this, you know, in visual side, you know, as a kid, like I thought I was like messed up for life, you know, cause it's a long trip. Like acid is seven, eight hours. So, and it, every second is like a minute. So I, and you can't sleep. Right. So I'm like laying in bed and I'm like, this is, I'm, I'm like, I'm fucked. I'm, I'm going to go to a mental institution. Like, this is it. Like I'm, I am done. Like I can't get out of this horrible feeling, but I was like, but you know, at that, at that time, you know, Christianity was, you know, I was raised, I was going to school for Christian schools and stuff. It's like, if you get me out of this, God, I will do whatever I will. I will be a big, I will believe you. Please save me. Please, please, please save me. And I'll never touch drugs ever again. And then, uh, yeah. And then like, I, I came out of that, like, you know, like fizzled out of it. Like the fizzling was gone. And, and then I was like, oh, I am, I am a born again Christian. I, you know, I was just like hardcore Christian. And I, and then I found straight edge heart. And then the music aligned with the straight edge philosophy that I was living by from this trauma. So it was just like the timing was important too. Cause I was always passionate about music too come together though are, are you you know it's like certain people i meet a boxer or something and they're the most mellow people on the planet because they're getting it all out yeah <laughs> yeah so how does that work when you sort of have this punk uh you know communication and you know your straight edge how does that how does that work because usually i think people think it's like i'm angry yeah. and i'm self-destructive music it's like no it's very different okay so like the there's there's punk which is like they, they, they talk about problems. Okay. Punk is all about problems. Like fuck the world. Everyone's, everything's gone to shit. Anarchy, but like not necessarily in a good way, like just like cause mayhem. And then there's hardcore, which was a subset of punk, which really talked about solutions. So there's a problem, but then here's the solutions. So that's the kind of music that I, I, I was more into was the hardcore music. So a lot of it was like, you know, because it's a lot of just boys just moshing together. So it's a lot of like brotherhood, like we're into this together. We're like brothers, you know, and like forever kind of thing, like unity. But then there's also like this whole subset of like, the, the hardcore philosophy of like, well, there's problems in the world and this is what we need to do to make it better by doing this, by doing that. It's almost like almost Boy Scouty. Like it's <laughs> almost like kind of like cool Boy Scouty in a way. So I, I was like, it, once I was in this world, my mom was happy. She's like, sweet. He's like, 
like not not uh not doing drugs he's like this kind of weird like boy scout kind of like behavior which is bizarre at 16 17 i mean you still like i'm still skating and like you know being like having to like like run from the cops from skating in certain areas but are there girls i didn't have any girls i didn't have any girlfriends or anything like that i was just I was also, you know, being the only Asian friend out of my whole crew or of skate friends, like it, it just didn't happen. It just wasn't going to happen in Newport Beach. If a girl was to like me in Newport Beach and I'm Asian, it would be like, whoa, that's really weird. Like, why would you like it? Just that it sounds it sounds weird now, like saying it, but because it could be like exotic, right? Like, you- yeah, my first girlfriend was. She was not like popular, you know, she was not a cheerleader. She was not part of the traditional popular squad. She was an artsy, weird. She loved the Smiths and Morrissey and Smashing Pumpkins. And, and she like lit candles and, and uh, she had all this like Jesus Christ and Mary, like Mary stuff all over her walls, but she wasn't religious. She was just, she was just like, you know, not center. And I mean, and she liked me. I was like, what? This is weird. <laughs> it's totally bizarre. And then, uh, yeah. And then like, you know, that was, you know, that was my first like kiss and you know, all that stuff. But, um, but that was when I was 16. So, I mean, it just, it, it like, you kind of accept that, uh, it, you know, when you're in that world, you just accept like you're the last in the line for th- those kinds of things to happen. And, uh, and you just have to, and I just skated my nights away. I just would skate, skate and skate. And, music and kind of like, you know, that was my thing. But, but, but the Boy Scout thing is kind of funny when I really think about it. But do you feel inside when you're there and you're doing that, you're like, it's going to work out for me. I'm going to be in love and I'm going to have intimacy and I'm going to experience all that. Or does it feel like unknown? Yeah. It's completely unknown, completely unknown because there's no, like, there's also no role models, no Asian role models to look up to. Like, Especially if we're talking about like on the romantic side of things, there's no Asian male role models in media that exist on like, you know, as a love interest, you know, or it just, and I just didn't have a community that, that would talk about that. Asians, of course, like you go to Irvine, Asians, they Asians, it's just very normal. I, when I, since I grew up in Newport beach, I was always interested in like white girls because that's all I saw. It's like, that's my culture. And I didn't see many Asian girls. There, there was an Asian girl down the street, you know, but we, there's never like a, never a chemistry between us. <laughs> People want to get the journey from high school to LA. It's all in your book, Blue. But I want to kind of move through and, and get to um, monumental moments. Like, I, I, I know, you know, you talked about when your mom bought you the, uh, the four track. The, the Tascam four track recorder, yeah going to towards Santa Barbara, the whole record label and pickle patch and all that, like all of these things shaped you. It felt like in your life when your dad was sick, it sounded like it was like almost like the first time you got nudged into an internal darkness. Cause even though, okay, pay the rent and try to figure out the whole social construct of growing up and doing all these things. I get the sense that it's always like, okay, I I can do this. Oh, this is hard, but we got it had your own experience and a kind of emotional darkness was when your, when your dad was sick. 
That was very heavy. That was yeah, definitely a different kind of darkness. It has a lot of parallels to even being on like that darkness that acid brought me into. Because it's kind of like this, like a black hole. It's not really like when I when I thought about when I was on acid, nothing else really mattered except for like what was going on in my head. Like it wasn't about like my finances or heartbreak or you know, you know, whatever might happen in your life that you can heal from. Like when, when you have like this kind of darkness in your head, you feel like you're in a, a pit that you can't get out of. And, and this, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. You think coming from a brave culture that in a way sometimes, you know, it, it is about sort of like pulling, always being up, up by your bootstraps and like, you know, showing up that when these really emotional moments, maybe the acid kind of peeled away all of that. And then maybe again with the, you know, importance of the relationship of your dad and him being sick that it's actually like was a time for you to really understand like all the way in, like to indulge. Because I think different cultures sort of say, oh no, let that out or express it. And you can be like, I feel this, I feel that. And I feel sometimes with certain cultures, it's like, no, just hold that. Oh yeah. Hold that down. That in some ways it, it probably could hit you in a harder or, or more dramatic fashion because it's like, wait a second. Maybe that is a Japanese cultural, it feels like it is to hold it down, you know, keep, keep a, a, like a smiling face, deal with it and move on and it'll subside. But it's like, you know, post my dad dying, I went to therapy and obviously I learned, <laughs> I learned that this is not the healthiest approach in life. And um, being able to confront that is very difficult. It's very difficult because you don't want to go back down to the pit, you know, because when you're in the pit, you feel like you can't get out. But I, I think over time, one thing I've learned is that like, like I will go back in that pit again. It's just, you know, when shit happens, I'm going to go down in that pit, but I know I'm going to come out of that pit. You know, I think when you're young, you don't know if you're ever going to ever come out of that pit, you know, and as you get older in life, you realize the pit is going to happen. It just, we just have to accept that and like, know that we're going to get out, you know, but we have like, we can't get out unless we confront. Do you think it also gets easier when we can start to address the feelings? Maybe the pit doesn't have to be so deep. Like maybe the pit we have to fall into is a, a little more shallow because we've maybe spoken up a little yeah, sooner or right. makes me sad or I feel afraid. Do you feel like maybe now, cause you've gotten a new, new skill sets through your dad passing and relationships and friends passing that your pits, they, they're different. I definitely agree that the, the pit doesn't go so deep, but sometimes it does. Sometimes, sometimes it's just like, you can't, you can't stop the depth of the pit. And it's like, Hey, it shouldn't be so deep. It really shouldn't because I've, I'm confronting, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And still like it just, you just fall in there and you're just stuck down there for a minute and you just have to kind of be like, okay, I'm here. Let's just, let's just deal with it. Let's not hide from it. Let's not hide in the corner and like put our head down. Let's like stand up in the pit and deal with it. But it's, it's hard, man. Like my best friend, he just passed away this year and he was my manager too. So he was very, very close to me. And that like, I was, I was down in that pit again. It was, it's really hard. It's, it's like really hard to lose someone. You know, it was really, really hard for me to, to deal with the loss of, of Michael. Michael, the one, forgive me, who kind of said, you said, I'm not good. 
at kind of getting back to people and dealing with things. And he said he was going to help you. Oh, you mean in the book? Like this is when you started really getting to focus on being a DJ. You had the support. That that might be Michael. That might be Max. I have two managers, but both these guys have been with me since day one. So I, you know, I'm very, very loyal to my team. Like since 2005, I've been with Matt. For 2008, I've been with Michael. But like we're lifelong. Was he ill, or did it was it a, a, something unexpected? He had a heart attack. But yeah, we we just found out more about it, and it was just a plain heart attack. He was just walking his dogs. He's 45 years old. He's 45 years old. So young. So young. And and you know, like I I was you know I never even had a contract with him. I never had a contract with him. We were I was planning to work with him for the rest of my life. And trust me, like we've we're like best friends. So of course we're gonna fight. We like. And we're both very, very like passionate people. So we like, when we, when we fight, it's like two bulls hitting heads. Like it's pretty, pretty crazy. And, but I would never, ever, like, I just could never like leave him. We, we always, we, I, I've forced all my life with him for, like, I was like, I was as if we're married. Like I could see, foresee my life with Michael for, till I die, you know, like doing everything together, you know? So it's like, it's just it's just crazy when something tragic happens like that, you know, like one phone call and boom, it's like what, you know, it's just it, that was really that was really really hard. It's still hard, it's still really hard. And the more I talk about, it, the more I'm gonna probably start crying. So I'm gonna stop. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that we all like experience that, and those are also the things we're afraid of. You know, it's like we walk around going like, you know, I don't want to lose something or anyone, you know, and I think so many people, that's one of the most important things we're afraid of. And it's because it's that risk you take when you love people and you they're important to you. And that's the tough one. Like, do we wall up and say, okay, I don't want to get close to anyone or we go, fuck it. I'm going to go for it and price for that, you know? When, when your dad... That was the only time that you got into like, you know, alcohol and things like that. And then, you know, what jolted you to sort of go, yeah, that that's not going to work because that's a that's a hard one. Alcohol was becoming this major occupational hazard. Like, let's say you carried, let's say just life and sadness and then that crazy schedule. Like, do you think it was also that part of it just kind of getting into your life? There's no doubt that like, you know, death and all those things are going to lead to you finding ways to cope, right? And alcohol has got to be one of the easiest. Boom, it's right there. And it's just going to fix a solution right then and there. And, and it's acceptable to a certain degree. Like doing like drugs, hard drugs, it's not acceptable. You might, if you find like that that's like your thing, you do it like secretly. Alcohol, it's like, it's ex- especially acceptable when you're out and about. And then like every time I DJed, it was my shtick. I would drink. It was part of my show, which was dangerous because like, I kind of had to like make sure I lived it up. Like I had to do every show. I had to be like downing vodka during my set. And you know, in that punk rock, like I don't give a fuck attitude. Like, you know, like let's go crazy. And like, you know, and everyone there goes wild and crazy. They're like, Oh wow, this works. You know, like luckily I found cake throwing instead of, <laughs> drinking as my shtick. Yeah. In 2009, my really close friend at the time, DJ AM, he passed away. And I was in Sweden when I found the news. And then I'm not sure if it was that night or the day after, but I was like, that was it. I, I'm like, I'm done with this, this stupid 
lifestyle trick of drinking, you know, semi coping with all this stuff. And then also just because it's like part of my show. And honestly, I hated the, I hated drinking. I just liked the feeling of being drunk, getting there. I just would rather just get drunk. That was the, how I thought about it. And then like the feeling after God, the hangovers, all that stuff, just the wear and tear in your body. And I was younger. So I could kind of deal with like drinking every show, but doing like 300 shows, you're drinking every night. You're basically an alcoholic, you know? So yeah, I just did a cold, cold stop on it. I don't remember any withdrawals. I don't remember any, um, like me wanting to drink. I I just never, I never had that. I, I, I feel very blessed for this. Very, very blessed. Laird had his own version of that. And he said he just got, you know, kind of tired of not being truthful with himself. Like I'm in charge of this. And I remember witnessing it. It was, I was with him for at least 10 years before. And it, you know, there was, it was very interesting to watch someone's, you know, make a pivot. And, and, you know, I met you around a healthful environment. You have pivoted. It appears that you seem to do things all the way. You pivoted now into, okay, you know, not only for your own life, but even thinking about your dad. Okay, how can we take better care of ourselves? And what's exciting is you have access, right? Like um, yeah. I was reading the, about like Dr. DeGray and things like that. Maybe you could say how that, that journey has been for you and also how has that supported you? You're on the road. I mean, how many, how many shows on average do you do like 2018 and 19? Well, well, the last 15 years, I've been touring 200 shows minimum a year consecutively every single year. And like I cap out about 250 but it's 200, 250 shows a year. And yeah, I mean, like even like now because of COVID, I'm not touring, but I can't, I can't imagine not doing that. I can't imagine not doing less. Like if I did less than 200, I feel, it'd feel like hurt. (laughs) I'd be like, what's wrong? Connecting with the humans. Um, You're not being productive enough. You're not getting to have this exchange. Like what is it? This definitely now my addiction is that the constant exchange, the constant connection, the the fans, the the shows. Here's the thing, I, just just to really break it down. Like obviously, like from a bird's eye perspective, you see someone on stage and you see like a big crowd cheering and jumping up and down, and you're like, okay, eventually that would get old, you know. But or maybe not. But like, there's something that's really special about. Like when you see the big crowds, it can be like totally, you know, it might look, it might feel the same to different shows, but you see the fans inside those crowds and they're making it worthwhile for you. They're the ones that are singing the song, like pulling their hair out, screaming, some crying, whatever it is. They're so emotionally expressive to the song that you made. And that's what I'm looking for. So when I see that, I'm like, that's why I'm here on the stage right now. If I don't see that, if I don't feel like I have this kind of connection, then I, I, I don't know if I would be doing this as much. But it's, it's like, it's those diehard people, the fans that, that like tell the story and the way they sing it back to you and like how meaningful it is to them. When you go to different like countries, are they telling you different stories? Is each song told to you in a different 
way in their interpretation? Yes, because fan reactions are different for each country. Like Latin America, all of like South America, Central America, the fans are so passionate. So passionate. I never thought I would have like a Justin Bieber moment where I'd be running from 100 fans. But we made it fun. We made like content with it. I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is crazy. Like, you know, because I do like the meet and greets and stuff and like get to meet some of these fans. And, and actually during those times is, is really special because sometimes you get like a kid rolling in with in a, in a wheelchair and, and him telling his story of like how he was going through some hard times and he's like still jamming in my music or a girl that was dealing with cancer, like, you know, and you could tell she's just, you know, fighting to survive and she's there in, you know, we're just hugging each other, like crying almost, you know, it's like, it's, there's like times like that where like it all is just so worth it, you know, cause there, it's you, the power of music is incredible. You know, like when you hear something, it can really lift you up. It can really like, change, you know, your whole mentality, the, the whole everything. But it circles back to the exact thing you're talking about when you were younger. It's the thing, the gift that music gave to you. And then, you know, you dedicated your life and now you're participating in that city of that gift. What are some of your best practices or hacks when you're on the road to, because you, you start like, you know, you're in Spain and you're starting at 3 a.m. What are some of your, your tricks? Well, now, you know, because what's going on, I'm learning a lot about self-care. I'm being way more consistent. I mean, I've always had this interest, you know, like talk about Aubrey de Grey and like, like these are like scientists that I've talked to like five, six years ago. Ray Kurzweil was with him in his apartment in, in San Francisco, met with him. He's on a song of mine too. Like just like I've always had this interest in anti-aging and different methods and practices to, to um, apply to my crazy life. But the problem is it's hard to be consistent. It's so hard to be consistent. But now. I'm practicing that consistency and creating the habit, you know, creating it like where I can do it. If I do, I do breath work every single day. So that's like, that's easy. That's all that takes 15 minutes of my time. You know, you can go longer, obviously. I meditate for, for five minutes. I do the, the sauna at least four, four days a week with my mom. I bring my mom in there. I have the cold plunge. I do it only twice a week, but I'm like, I have it on a schedule. I put it on my schedule every day which is really, really important. So one thing I'm going to try to plan out is that once I have this, the mental habit being wired, you do it enough times, it just becomes wired in your head. You know, Once I have that, then I'm going to start scheduling them on the road, just like I'm scheduling in my calendar. Like this, this call with you was scheduled, but also reading a book for 30 minutes was scheduled too. And doing the sauna is scheduled and doing all these different things are scheduled. Because you know, when people do schedules, they only put their work in there. Like, okay, I got to do this from one to two, but I, I got to schedule even like time for my girlfriend. <laughs> like I gotta, I gotta put you the schedule. Don't get mad at me. But like, you know, that's the thing too. Like people who have such big and busy lives as you, your personal life, you know, it's almost like they have to say, okay, for this period of time, I'm going to rotate around you because you have a lot of moving parts. I mean, I don't know how else it would work and see a lot of artists. And I think Part of what people don't realize is it's glamorous and people, a lot of people come to see you and it looks fun and all these things. Um, and I know you've brought a lot of your family to live around you in, um, in Vegas. So that's good. But that it's also you, you're sacrificing elements of your personal life to 
do this much stuff. That'll have to be the next book. Yeah, it's true. I mean, this the the book Blue is really doesn't talk too much about the last five, six, seven years, you know. Was there a lesson you learned in being married and not married? Did you take something away and think, okay, when I go the next time, I'm gonna I get that that I'm gonna rejigger that a little different. Yeah, love is just like one of those locks or <laughs> You can't, you know, you you could jiggle it all you want, but like I don't know, it, that's that's a tough one. Like you know, you of course you have to learn from your mistakes. You have to learn from the things that like of the problems that you caused, you know, and how you could do better. First things I think about is like, what are the big problems that I instigated or like perpetuated because of my bad behavior or like anger or or my ego or you know. All these things. And then you really boil it down. I guess it's like great to learn these things just through life, you know, because it's all, it's a relationship, just like how we have a relationship with our family, you know, our parents, our siblings, our friends, you know, the basis of a great marriage is is a strong relationship, you know? Um, So it's like, yeah, but there's just so many other doors to unlock in that world that I'm still learning. (laughs) Funny, you know, Sometimes that kind of quiet one-on-one, there's so many elements to it that are like repetitive in some ways. I don't want to say, you know, unsexy, but it's like, there you are, just the two of you, right? And it's such an interesting contrast to when you're on the road and it's like thousands of people jamming. And it's just an interesting thing to navigate. And I really appreciate that you're on that quest. By the way, you layered together, just so cute. Oh, we're cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just I just love like the interaction between you guys, you know. Well, I I have a deep uh, respect and uh, love for Laird, and I've talked about this a lot. We've stepped on each other's feet a lot, and you know, it's like a language that you learn. And I was very afraid of intimacy and being vulnerable, and Laird was certainly braver than myself. And then you start going, "Oh, this makes me really uncomfortable," but I I want to be with this person, and so I'll move out of my comfort zone. We're many years in, but I joke that even though we have, like have kids and like houses and whatever, it's like we wake up each day and we're still we earn it each day. That's all you can do. I want to talk a little bit about your brain um, health fascination because I know that's really important to you. I mean, yeah, outside the foundation, I'm just passionate about the human brain. I mean, as I was on my quest, my my learning journey about anti aging and and health, and uh, a lot of it was geared for my mom. You know, like learning about cancer, what killed my dad, uh, so it doesn't kill my mom. Nutrition, meditation, all these things. I'm like, I, I, you know, I want to learn this for myself, but really, like, I want to protect the people I love and share with them. That's why I bring my mom in the sauna, and I, I don't throw her in the cold plunge. She's 77. She, <laughs> she wouldn't do that anyways. But yeah, but a lot of it goes. It boils down right up to the brain. It, it all goes up to the brain. Obviously, cardiovascular is very, very crucial to, to, to stay on top of. But a, a lot of information, a lot of uh, conversation, dialogue, it stays on cancer, it stays on the body. It doesn't really go into like a lot of the brain stuff. When you open that door, it's, it's very, very like, there's so many different worlds that you can really talk about, which is exciting. Because there's one is, well, obviously like uh, finding the cures for, for diseases. Right. What what are those diseases, and what are the different ways that we can find ways to to, to alleviate or cure or, or lessen, slow down? And then there's another door that is all about 
like the advancement of the brain, like the big question marks in the brain that we're trying to figure out. And if we can understand that, that opens up another door where Neon Future lives. That's my album. That's like my, like I have a tattoo of Neon Future on my arm. That's the, like when you, when you um, can answer those big question marks, you can answer things like that sound crazy, like the idea of living forever. Like, like a lot of stuff that are very much science fiction right now. And in that world, my passion really lives right there. So I like to say this. I like to say that I like to, I like to sit in between science fiction and science fact right in the middle. And as people like Elon Musk or Brian Johnson or Ray Kurzweil are flying from one, one side to the other with their ideas and their inventions and their, and their imagination first to, to develop into like science, I'm like jumping on their back and I'm like, yo, can you tell me some information like before it happens? I really want to like know about it. And uh, I've been lucky that I've been able to sit with some of these amazing people with these incredible breakthroughs that are happening. And, um, and you know, of course, I'm just like anyone else listening to podcasts and, and reading books and like and just trying to get the latest on Neuralink from Elon Musk or um, Brian Johnson, who was on Neon Future 4. He, he put me, like before he announced it just a few weeks ago, I was lucky I signed an NDA and everything. I was lucky I got into this box, this room, put on this brain cap on my head. And it literally showed me on the screen in front of me what I was listening to. So it would play a song and then it would, it would shazam and tell me like, you're listening to this song. It was reading the songs playing from my head, from the brainwaves, not just your brainwaves. It could tell the song I was listening to. So like that technology is happening 2020, you know, and I really agree with Ray Kurzweil on that. We're moving at this technological curve where it is moving, not at a linear rate, but like exponentially, we're going faster and faster that there are going to be some incredible things happening in our lifetime that sound crazy. Yeah, but us talking in two different states face to face, you know, 20 years ago, you'd be like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my last question is, you were talking about when you got into the music and the whole idea was what would, could you contribute? You know, like everyone sort of saying, well, we're going to, everyone's going to bring something, right? And it was maybe even talking about the idea of, looking at what's not right and what can we do to contribute to making it better or right. You know, what would be your hope that what you're leaving, you go to a city, you play two, three nights and you go to the next, what would really excite you to know that you were kind of just sprinkling and dropping off, reminding people about enjoying their life, connecting, having fun. And because it is, you know, from a positive undertone, what is it like that would really excite you if you thought, Oh, when they go home that night, they have this little bit of this fairy dust that said this to them. You know, you're doing so many different things. Yeah. You know, what is it that you, your ultimate dream of like what you're trying to put out. And so I think for someone like you, who's found so much success at doing this very specific thing, you know, maybe it's do that, like you said, until you don't have that connection, you know, so that it's, you do it fully and wholly and then maybe do something else. I don't know. But I think when we can show up at that level, you know, the rest is I get is up for interpretation. Yeah, no, I know. I agree with you. Like I, I'm definitely of that mindset that when I don't feel that, that feeling that I feel every single show, then, you know, I'm on the cusp of ADD already. 
So I'm just going to find something else that entertains me or finds that passion that, that pulls me. And I'm, I am a person that, that has a lot of different passion points. But there's nothing stronger and more affecting me, my spirit, my person than the shows. There's just nothing. Besides like, you know, the love you have with your partner and your, your family. But like, like that is, I mean, I just feel like I, I was meant to do this. I was meant to, to be on stage, you know, playing music in one form. It, it could be anything. In this case, in this life or whatever, it's DJing. But I was meant to be entertaining people on stage. You know, I just like, that's, that's like, I know that for a fact. Luckily, I'm a DJ, not like a kind of thing where like age eventually will not allow you to do it. But I can, I could DJ do this for a long time, as long as my hearing. Well, your left ear. Yes, my, tonight is my left ear, yeah. Steve, I really appreciate your time. And if people want to read the book, it's blue. And you give a lot of examples of how blue shows up in your life. Your name is what, blue, uh, blue tree? Blue tree, Aoki. Yeah. So I uh, I really appreciate your time, and if uh, you and Laird ever want to uh, go into an ice tub together, or if you ever want to come back over and try some deep water pool training, we got yeah, we got to do round two definitely. Plus, you guys, I mean, little Laird, Laird, I said you guys, I think of you as the same person sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but Laird's going to be on Mindfulness Marathon soon on my YouTube. We'll uh, promote it when we when we do this. But I thought that was really incredible because you got, I mean, you got some amazing people, Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Wim Hof. It's awesome having you, uh, Laird on there. You, <laughs> Laird on there and uh, Wim, Wim Hof, Cesar Milan, Sleep Doctor. You know, it's, it's actually really cool. It's happening every day this week. You should bring the Sleep Doctor when you go on the road. I definitely uh, needed to talk to him. Uh, you know, it was like we met a couple of years ago, but like now I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. Yeah, you're because you're in COVID. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's because I mean, who knows what it'll be like when I'm on the road again. But he did say something interesting. He's, he said that you don't need seven, eight hours of sleep. He said that. Yeah, but you might want to sleep at least when it's dark. At some point, yeah, that's going to be hard when when I'm in Spain and like my the the peak time. By the way, people go out to dinner at like one a.m. Oh, I know that's like our hell. Like when we go to Europe and they're like, "What time do you want to go to dinner?" And people go like eleven thirty, twelve, and Larry just starts cringing. I know you go on on your show at three in the morning or something. Yeah, yeah, the peak time's three thirty. Peak time's three thirty. So you we go out to eat between twelve and one. You know, digest check out some of the other acts like other DJs and then go on to like six, seven in the morning. Amazing. Steve. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like rate, subscribe and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.